Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Congressman Thomas Massey, who represents Kentucky's 4th Congressional District, which stretches across Northern Kentucky, including Northern Kentucky University, where, as you know, I work, and also over 280 miles of the Ohio River. Congressman Massey attended MIT, where he earned a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's in mechanical engineering. Prior to serving in Congress, he was an inventor, an entrepreneur, and judge executive of Lewis County, Kentucky. In Congress, he serves on the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure and the Committee on Oversight and Reform. Congressman Massey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Michael. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. You know, I wanted to start with something that's always sort of uh, sort of alternately fascinated and amazed me, and that is fundraising. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's a fact of life for members of Congress or those who wish to be. Now, and I've heard in more than one place that members of Congress can spend anywhere between 30 and 70 percent of their time fundraising. And, and I guess I was wondering, first off, if that seems more or less right to you, and if it does, what does it say about the system that we have if members have to spend that much time raising money as opposed to, you know, legislating or helping out constituents? Well, first off, let me confirm there are some people who do spend that much time. I would say they spend 30 to 70 percent of their time fundraising or something that will support fundraising. Mm-hmm. But, there, but not everybody spends that much time fundraising up here. I can guarantee you I spend less than 1% of my time fundraising. Wow. And yeah, (laughs) that should be hard to believe, but it's true. In fact, I once saw an article uh, printed that said that I was number 438 in (laughs) Congress, in the House of Representatives in fundraising for the like first six months or first quarter of one year. And I thought, how can that be? And I looked down through the numbers and Guam and Puerto Rico had beaten me. they have non-voting delegates who raised more money than me that quarter. Wow. Uh, it, was, it was an experiment that I made. I thought, you know what? Let's just see if I don't ask for money, will people give it to my campaign? You know, right. just sort of as an experiment. It, well, this experiment was conclusive. Nobody gives you money if you don't <laughs> ask for it. Yeah. Nobody wakes up. Hey, you know what? I think I should send a check to my congressman. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. So that's what they're doing. They're on the lines, dialing for dollars. Now, the, the real question is, if, if so many districts are deep blue or deep red, maybe they've been gerrymandered to be safe districts for Republicans or Democrats, or maybe they just turn out that way. Some districts just turn out that way. If, if 80 to 90% of the congressional districts are going to be Republican or Democrat, and you know that fairly well, even before the election starts. Why does why is so much of Congress, so many congressmen, consumed with fundraising if they don't need the money to get reelected? Well, the answer is there's an incentive structure. Uh, it's sort of unwritten, but it's well known here inside the Beltway that encourages members of Congress to spend their time fundraising and to give it to the party. Now, you know you, you're probably asking. Why would you sit on the on the phone lines, you know, right. for maybe eight hours a week and die and cold call people 
I mean, this is one of the hardest things to do. I yeah. mean, it's like telemarketing, right? Uh, and it's it's very discouraging. It's like getting the door slammed in your face because not everybody donates. But um, why would you do it and then just give it to the party if you don't need it to get reelected? Well, the Democrats and the Republicans make their committee assignments contingent upon you raising um, your quota. And for instance, my quota here in Congress is supposed to be $200,000 every election cycle. Mm. I'm supposed to raise and give $200,000 to the Republican Party um, in order to keep the two seats on the two committees that I told you about, uh, or that you mentioned in the, in mm-hmm. the monologue there that I'm on. Now, those aren't desirable committees, which is why I haven't been kicked off for not giving, I say desirable, they're desirable that my constituents appreciate that I'm, for instance, on the Transportation Committee, which has uh, you know, jurisdiction over all the roads and bridges and airports and waterways, yeah. right? You would th- think that's important. But the reality is they're not desirable. It's not desirable in Washington, D.C. because not a lot of lobbyists want to give you money if yeah. you're on that committee. You have to be in that niche of providing transportation in order to be a lobbyist who wants to give money to a member on that committee. But the lobbyists all want to give money to members of the Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over the tax code, which touches every aspect of business and personal lives in the country. So if if I were on the Ways and Means Committee, uh, my quota would probably be $500,000 or higher um, every election cycle. You know, I got to say, that sounds an awful lot like an extortion racket to me. It would be, (laughs) I'm telling you, Michael, they would perp walk you to the jail if you were on a city council and you told another city council member to have any authority here, you're going to have to raise some money and give it to me. Like, this would be illegal um, at the lowest, on a school board and anything but it's completely legal up here in congress yeah that's where they say it's legal nobody's ever been prosecuted for it right and and so again to me that one of the big problems is that of course the public doesn't elect you and and everyone else to raise money they elect them to actually (laughs) do stuff and you know that seems to be a problem here's the other problem michael I can't go back to Northern Kentucky and do a fundraiser in somebody in a supporter's living room and ask 20 people to give me money so that I can come up here and buy a seat on a committee. Yeah. Okay. That just doesn't fly. People don't, aren't inspired to do that. It, um, you know, they sort of reel at the thought if they knew that's what their money was going for. But the, but the ones who will give you money to get you on a committee are the lobbyists. Right. And so now if you have a plum committee, you're, somewhat indebted to the lobbyist who gave you the money to pay your rent for that committee. And so it's circular. And so a lot of people feel like uh, money has corrupted politics and they're calling for publicly funded elections. And there there are lots of ideas out there that probably won't work. But the, the problem is they're not trying to solve the actual problem because people don't really know how the money corrupts the system up here. And the way the money corrupts the system up here is it's the currency with which lobbyists influence congressmen because the congressmen are trying to influence the leadership to put them on the committee they want. And this is not like some, it's, it's not like you get a phone call it's not, and somebody suggests something and then later on in the phone call they say, hey, weren't you really wanting to be on this committee? Like 
They mm-hmm. tie the two directly. They send me a bill to my office, my taxpayer-funded office. The, the Republican political party sends the bill to this office, which should also be illegal, telling me that I owe the money for the committee seats that I'm on. Wow. wow it's that's... quid pro quo <laughs> all day long. Yeah, and, and of course, as you mentioned, this isn't this isn't a partisan issue. This is a, a bipartisan thing. And you would think that this would be the sort of issue that you could get people on the left and the right to sort of rise up against. I guess if it weren't such kind of a boring technical issue in a way. It's a boring technical issue. And here's the problem. When you come to Congress and the rules are explained to you in the smoke filled rooms, you have you have a, a, a two choices. You're either going to play along or you're not going to play along. And you, if you can't change the rules, and these are told to you that as, as the, you know, the gospel, these are the rules that are in place, then a lot of people have invested many hours on the phone calling, raising money for their party, Democrat or Republican. So, and now they've got their plum committee assignment. Why would they want to rock the boat? Right. They, don't, they sort of resent that they had to do it, but now that they've done it, why would they give sure. up? What, like, how anxious is somebody who's on the Ways and Means Committee who mortgaged <laughs> you know, their principles to get there and then suffered? Maybe they didn't even mortgage their principles. Maybe they just spent 30 to 70% of their time on the phone when they could have been doing something else, cold calling uh, you know, rich people and begging for money. After they've done enough of that and they, and they achieved their goal, is that person going to say, you know what, we should base these committee assignments on yeah. something else? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess the rationalization, what, what they would tell themselves is essentially that, well, I need to be in this position to do good for the people. And if that's what it takes, then the, the, the end justifies the means, essentially. That's right. Their, their motives aren't evil. Yeah. They're not evil. They're, in fact, somebody listening to this podcast could, could rationally say, that Massey would be a better congressman if he would spend 30 to 70 percent of his time raising money and giving it to the party and getting a different committee assignment. Now, I disagree with that. I'm I'm able to, in this swamp, I've been able to stay on the transportation committee and through time, through seniority, work my way up the dais just by outlasting a bunch of people who, who frankly want to migrate to a committee that's more lucrative. And uh, because I'm happy on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, I'm, I've been able to move up through the ranks. Now, they won't assign the chairmanship to me the day I become the you know, highest ranking member on that committee. They won't just say, oh, well, you've been here the longest. Let's, yeah. let's give you the chairmanship. No, they could pick uh, a sophomore and say, you know what, this guy, he's really done some good work over at the NRCC raising some money. And we're going to put him in that chairman seat. And oh, by the way, the lobbyists who have business in front of this committee really like him. He seems to get along well with them. And he's good at raising money for the party. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you, you mentioned chairmanships, and that kind of led me to another question I wanted to ask you about. You have been now in your time in Congress, uh, both in the majority and in the minority. Now, of course, it's a lot better to be in the majority, but you, you had to make that transition. And I, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little about what that was like and, and how, in your view, the minority party uh, is treated. <laughs> well, it's different than in the Senate than it is the House. Right. Okay. 
in the house, the minority is is almost irrelevant. I mean, it is a stark contrast. Okay, Kevin McCarthy is the minority leader. Like he's the highest ranking Republican here. And and he has less power, I think, in his position now than I had when I was a rank and file member of the majority, right? Wow. So the like the most junior member of the majority is more powerful than the most senior member of the minority on on some days it seems that way wow and uh i was in a meeting uh, about a year ago with uh president uh, uh vice president mike pence and uh, i think we had just lost the the majority and he said well folks when you're in the majority you legislate and when you're in the minority you communicate yeah. <laughs> in other words go out there try to Try to get your message out there, and uh, maybe you can get the majority back. Right, and obviously that that's that's incredibly important. Not not only getting the majority back, but I imagine having that unified control of both chambers and the presidency. And and that leads me to another question I wanted to ask you about. You know, a, a lot of people decry unproductive gridlock congresses, but at least I think a lot of people on the left. Uh, when they think about those marvelous productive congresses, they're thinking about like from the 30s through the 90s, when essentially Congress was run by the Democrats. I mean, there were a few years in there when Republicans could manage to gain the majority. Right. But for the most part, not so much. Then we see Newt Gingrich in the mid 90s. And all of a sudden, Republicans start to become truly competitive. And now it seems, I think, to a lot of folks that with control being up for grabs, essentially just about every election, at least in one chamber, that there's a lot less incentive to cooperate. And maybe that drives polarization. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, I think there are two factors here that are important when you talk about productivity in Congress. It, it's true, I think, productivity sort of waxes and wanes, uh, depending on if you have a bunch of people that can get along or a bunch of people that don't get along. But that's also attenuated by another factor, which is Congress's relevancy with respect to the judicial branch and the executive branch. Uh, yeah. And I think our the relevancy of this institution has declined precipitously with respect to the other two branches. And so even if we were productive, um, it's it's not clear what that would mean in terms of the overall government because, yeah. um, and what do you what do you define as productivity? Right, uh, growing government. Well, yeah. I would <laughs> I would argue that Congress has been pretty productive since I've been here. If the goal was to grow government, they have been productive. Right. They, right. If the if the goal was to spend boatloads of money, they have been very productive. Nothing seems to get in the way of their productivity if you're measuring it in terms of percent of GDP spent. Right. So in other words, uh, uh, legislative productivity has a liberal bias, basically. Well, it it implies, I guess, and it depends on what you mean by productivity. Like my definition of productivity would be accomplishing something like we did with the Industrial Hemp Amendment that I got passed in 2013 that became part of the 2014 Farm Bill. Now, 
Democrats, I worked with Democrats, Earl Blumenauer and Jared Polis. Jared Polis is now the governor of Colorado. But the three of us worked together, offered an amendment on the farm bill. They wanted to do something. I wanted to do something. It didn't involve spending more money, and it didn't involve passing another regulation or starting another program. They actually wanted to reduce the scope of government by allowing farmers to grow industrial hemp. And that fit with what I wanted to do. So when people talk about bipartisanship or compromise, that seems like a good bipartisan compromise, but neither of us really had to compromise our principles to be productive. Yeah. And that's how I would define productivity. And there, there are probably things like that right now we could do that we're not doing. And so in that regard, we are somewhat unproductive. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, relevance or decreased maybe relevance of Congress to, to the other couple of branches. And that, that's been a topic that at least some people have been talking about more and more lately. And again, a bipartisan sort of thing. Uh, a little, uh, I guess, last year or so, I remember uh, uh, Senator Ben Sass had an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about this. And I think a lot of people feel that Congress is delegating too much authority to the executive branch. And, and that's, not, again, not a Democrat-Republican thing. We've seen it in, in the last several administrations, I think. And I was wondering what, you, what your viewpoint on that. Is Congress not being muscular enough and asserting its authority as the first branch of government? It's, it's, not, it's not just not asserting its authority. It's not asserting its responsibility as mm-hmm. well. Let me take a particular example, the issue of declaring war. Right. And, and, and by the way, this isn't, this isn't brand new. This isn't like an Obama or a, a Trump thing. This has been going on for since the 1930s. Okay. It's, it's been a slow decline. For, for instance, you know, World War II, we declared war and every other time since then, it's been something short of that. And now we, we don't even give an authorization for use of military force anymore. Uh, so it's been it, recently it's at a, at an all time low, but it's been in a decline for a while. This is a this is a constitutional authority obligation responsibility that is clearly delegated to Congress. Yet we don't do it. And I can give you another example: tariffs. Okay, mm-hmm. whether you're for tariffs or against tariffs, tariffs are a tax. Okay, they're a tax on goods coming into this country. Well, get out the Constitution. (laughs) Not only did the founders not not trust the executive branch to raise taxes or to set taxes, they didn't even trust the senators. They they gave the House of Representatives sole authority. In fact, if, if the Senate passes a bill that has a tax or even just some kind of revenue measure in it and then sends it to the House, we can blue slip it, which means Basically, you send it back to the Senate and say, sorry, guys, you, you just tried to pass the tax and that's not your authority. Right. Yet, a lot of times we're, we've not been doing that. Um, they used to do that more. But think about the tariffs that have recently been uh, implemented. Again, I'm not saying I'm for or against those tariffs, but uh, from a, a process standpoint, it's turning the Constitution upside down to let the executive branch unilaterally pass the tax without any authorizing language from Congress other than something like maybe in the 70s and stuff that started in the 30s where they delegated some of this 
authority to the White House. And and I think partly the reason they delegate that authority is they they see that da- that power as being dangerous to their reelection if they exercise it one way or the other. Right. Let's say they de- they decide to go into a war and then the war becomes unpopular and people see their children coming back uh, dead or wounded. And then the congressmen get blamed for that. They'd much rather just let somebody sure. else uh, assume that responsibility. And the same goes for the tariffs. Yeah, I, I guess another argument aside from kind of passing the buck is the idea that, well, it's just a lot more efficient. It's so hard for Congress to get anything done. <laughs> yeah. that let's just, you know, let let the executive branch figure it out. Oh, I, I hear that on uh, like food safety issues or labeling issues. They just the FDA drug issues. So much of so much of the bills that we pass are just vague sort of guidelines and then some money for for a new executive branch organization to implement it. Frankly, right. even though I've been frustrated by the some of the social media companies, I've never advocated for Congress to regulate them. Right. And this is this is a tough position for me to take because a, a lot of what they do has been at odds with conservatives. I mean, they shadow banned. These are facts. These are, this isn't speculation. Like you can go do computer tests and prove this. They shadow banned Jim Jordan and and some other members of Congress to make sure their stuff doesn't show up in the feed, et cetera, et cetera. But and so people have come to me and say, you got to do something about these social media companies. Well, here's the problem. I know how this works in Washington D.C. What would Congress do if we did anything? We would. We would authorize the money to go to an executive branch organization who would then write the specific (laughs) and actual rules that would regulate. And guess what? 90% of the federal employees here in Washington, D.C. are Democrats. So you you might feel good by saying, oh, we can't let these social media, they're they're West Coast, uh, liberal leaning, you know, private industry. We've got to regulate them here in Washington, D.C. Well, it's not your congressman that's going to write the rules. Your congressman doesn't have time to do that. Your congressman would be lucky to even read the bill that authorizes the agency that's going to regulate them. And then it's going to go to a bunch of career employees. Yeah. And it's it's sort of a, a guarantee that you're going to get these these lawsuits and all this delay. And it just sort of seems to me to be a recipe for chaos and regulatory agency overreach, essentially. I think so, and they're going to spend a lot of money doing it. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, uh, the the time that members of Congress have to read legislation. Now, in the last Congress, the uh, there were 429 bills that became law. Now, that's over, like, over 13,000 that were introduced, but 429 is still a lot. And so I think some people have this belief that, well, my member of Congress should read everything that they vote on thoroughly. But I thought... 429 bills, that seems like an awful lot, especially for those folks who are doing all those cold calls for the RNCC or or what have you. So, I mean, so clearly members of Congress are not reading a lot of the legislation that they're that they're uh, voting on. And I'm wondering how big of a deal is that, would you say? Well, first of all, of the 429 bills, I bet 129 of them were naming post offices. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We passed eight of those like last night. 
<laughs> well, those okay, are easy, but, yeah. <laughs> but but there are now of the 429 bills, some of those were 2,000 pages long. Right. Okay. To make up for the post office bills, uh, it's so it's clear it's like that it's not humanly possible uh, in the time that we're given to read all of the bills. It's just not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you if they give you a two thousand page bill and say we're going to vote on it in, in thirty six hours, and and by the way, um, so so let me sort of define some terminology here. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. When we say read the bill, uh, if somebody sat down and read a bill from front to back, let's say it it was about fifty pages, and they read it from front to back. Without the context of the existing statutes, without knowing the paragraphs that are in between the paragraphs right. that you're going to insert into the U.S. code, there's really no way, even after you've read the bill, to know what it does. And if, you, if you're not a CPA, you might not even know what the consequences are of a tax bill, for instance, right? Right. So reading the bill is not a, a uh, sufficient condition, even. For understanding what's in it, I think what's what's even more important than reading the bill is understanding what the bill does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And now, now that we've established <laughs> that, uh, in order for people to to for it to matter that they read the bill, they would have it would what was in the bill would have to be part of their calculus for how they vote, and it's not always that way. Right. Like what I'm telling you is. Why would you bother to make somebody read a bill if they don't care what's in it? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying that facetiously, but some of my colleagues, it wouldn't matter to them if you came to them and said, oh my gosh, did you realize this 2000 page, page omnibus bill authorizes this spying program uh, at the NSA where everybody will get everybody's phone records? And they'll say, well, no, I, I didn't see that. And said, well, I'll send it to your staff. And their staff reads it and confirms it, and they still vote for the omnibus, right? right. Like, it's <laughs> there are constraints on members of Congress. Yeah. But back to your point, how do you deal with these bills that you don't really have time to read? Well, what we do is there's sort of almost like unofficial caucuses among staff, okay? So I have two legislative staff who comb through every bill that I'm going to have to vote on, okay? And if they're and this is why staff is so important up here. They need to know what my congressional district is like. They need to know what the feedback that I've received on things is like. They need to have been in the meetings. They need to know what promises I've made. And that way, when they start combing through these bills, not just to read them, but to but to find out what the bill does to the bills that already have been made into law. Right. right. They they need to be able to flag things for me yeah, and say, Congressman Massey, I've, I've just gone through this bill. I found this thing in it. But even two staffers here reading all the time, aren't, and, and they have to go to meetings too, aren't going to have time to do that. So this was the sort of unofficial caucus thing I was, I was starting to talk about. There are like listservs up here, email lists of uh, groups of staffers who uh, whose bosses are ideologically aligned mm -hmm, got and, it. 
they will say, okay, you start reading the bill from the front. I'll start on page 400. You start on page 2000 and read from the back to the front and let me know what you find. Yeah. And so. That's that's clever. Yeah. But but Uh, the thing is, I mean, a lot of staff is obviously super important for, for all of you. And that's why I think a lot of folks who study Congress academics say, you know, we've seen some pretty significant cutbacks in staff and and general resources really since the mid nineties. And there are a lot of folks who say, well, this is part of the reason why Congress can't do its job and sort of stand up to these agencies and kind of exercise its own independent judgment. And, and on one hand, I, I think that makes sense as an argument, but I think, well, I can't exactly see it being politically easy for a member of Congress to vote for more resources for Congress. And so I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, well, first of all, let me uh, let me tell you a Ron Paul quote. Somebody asked him about reading the bills that you know, Congressman Paul, did you really read all two thousand pages of this bill? And I think his response was something like, "Well, I got five pages in and found something unconstitutional, and I didn't have to read the rest <laughs> of it." Because once you decided you're going to vote no, yeah, b- based on something that's in the bill, you don't necessarily have to read the rest of right, it to sure. be no, to be yes. You have to be pretty thorough. Uh, so, uh, but to your the immediate point you raise, which is, uh, is it politically easy to tell people that you need more staff to deal with this? And the answer is no. In fact, there's political pressure to cut spending, and ironically, the only spending that Congress has consistently been able to cut is the spending for our own staff and our own resources. Right. And it was when I came into Congress, I'm going to use rough numbers, and I could be off a little bit. Uh, the, the previous congressman to me, Jeff Davis, had had like uh, $1.3 million per year in his membership allowance, right? That's what every member of Congress, with some variation based on how far from Washington, D.C. your district was, how much you might have to spend on travel, everybody got about that amount. Well, I immediately had to start with about $100,000 less per year than the congressman before me. Wow. And then, and then it was cut again. And, and yeah. so I closed. I, we, he had five district offices to interact with constituents. And the first thing I did was I had to close two of the district offices and renegotiate rent and move to different locations at the three remaining district offices and, you know, to get everything to fit inside of this budget that was cut. And so, and it's such a small percentage of the overall federal budget, but Congress, you know, wanted to make the impression on taxpayers that they were serious about cutting spending. But the problem is the only spending they cut was their own. (laughs) And ironically, now you're cutting staff whose job it is to find that stuff right. in that 2,000-page omnibus yeah. and tell you where the money's getting wasted. Yeah, so it's the, it's the least efficient, or it's an inefficient form of, of spending cut that actually ends up probably costing money, or potentially, at least in the long run. And, you know, I, I should point out that this is coming from Thomas Massey, you are not a right. you are not a, a spending right. kind of guy. And, and I wanted to ask you about that, too. Well, just, just, just on that point, yeah. too, uh, my my uh, friend, dear friend, maybe my best friend up here, uh, Cinder Rand Paul, 
he sends some of his congressional budget, his Senate budget, he every at the end of every year, they take a picture of a giant check with like $500,000 and he gives it back. It's money he didn't spend. Wow. You've you've never seen me do that, Michael. <laughs> because I, to me, I'm up here fighting a war. I'm not giving any of the bullets yeah, back. Yeah. There you go. Uh but I am I am fighting a war against an an over bloated executive branch that's got like a thousand times more money than me. Yeah. And to and I'm on the oversight committee. My like my staff is supposed to keep track of what the executive branch is doing. And I've got one staffer that's able to staff me on the oversight committee. How's he gonna track I mean, there are 4,000 employees at the Department of yeah. Education alone. Right. There's, a, there's an employee for, there's as many employees at the USDA now, Department of Agriculture, as there are farmers. Wow. Wow. And how are you going to, you know, there, was, there yeah. was a guy crying over at the USDA the other day, and, I, and um, I went over to check on him. I said, what's wrong? He said, my farmer died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. I, but, but, you know, that's weird because it seems to me I, I started out as a Republican, and you can, you'd say I lost my way. I'd say I found the light. But anyway, back <laughs> when I was a Republican, because we're around the same age, I was a Republican. I came up in the 80s and the 90s, and there were a lot of kind of Jack Kemp, Bob Dole sort of groups green eye shade Republicans, you know, fiscal conservatives. And now, mm -hmm. nowadays, we still have, of course, tax and spend Democrats. And OK, I'm one of them now. But now it seems like <laughs> but but, you know, now it's borrow and spend Republicans. And, and to my mind, borrow and spend is even worse than tax and spend, because with borrow and spend, our money is coming from the, the Chinese and the Japanese and, 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 and so forth. And so I'm wondering, whatever happened to the Republicans I grew up with and loved coming up? Uh, well, what do you think? You well, seem to be a okay. dying breed. Yeah, we are a dying breed. Um, you know, it's not, I mean, you should, you should be concerned about the debt, not just because we're borrowing the money from China and that our kids are going to have to pay it back someday. We're actually, because of the, the Federal Reserve's uh, monetary policy, we are artificially depressing interest rates. Right. And so what we're, when you do that, you're, and, and when you promote inflation in the process, you are causing a crisis in the pension funds and you are causing the money at the social security administration to be less because when the federal government borrows money from the social security administration, they do at the rate that the Federal Reserve sets. Well, I would say they have a conflict of interest because they're trying to manage all this debt and they're setting rates that are almost zero. So, you know, when I came here, I thought this is horrible. We're borrowing from our enemies and, and robbing from our children. But I soon discovered we're robbing from our grandparents Yeah, because of the, the uh, interest rate. Uh, being artificially low right. in all the policies to depress long-term interest rates. When when I first got here, there were two people still kicking around, uh, Simpson and Bowles. Do mm -hmm. you remember Simpson and Bowles? Oh, yeah. Okay. It was a Republican and a Democrat, and they had a proposal to get the debt back in line. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, we're going to cut $3 of spending for every dollar of taxes we increase. Okay. And I thought, Whoa, I don't know <laughs> if I could be for that. Uh-huh. Like, right? I don't know if I could be for that. But one of the first, but I got to meet them. They had a little 
meeting and I was like one of 20 congressmen that showed up to talk to him. They were still kicking around. At least I remember Simpson was there. And, um, and so the first dilemma I had to deal with was a fiscal cliff. This was the end of 2012 mm-hmm, going right. into 2013. And I, I, and uh, there were a lot of options on the table. And what I realized is if I could choose between cutting $2 of taxes or cutting $1 of spending, I would cut a dollar of spending all day long before I would cut $2 of taxes. Mm-hmm. If, if that's the choice. Now, I've never seen a bill that says, do you want to cut yeah. $2 <laughs> of taxes or $1 spending? But Simpson and Bowles had this, the most similar thing to that. They said, we'll cut $3 of spending and raise $1 of taxes. And that, that actually started looking better to me than when I first I encountered the idea. And, and here's why. The decision to spend is the decision to tax. You right. are eventually going to take that money either from your grandparents or from your kids or from yourself, but the money's got to come from somewhere. So spending matters more to me than taxes. Yeah, Cutting I, the spending does. I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. The decision to spend is the decision to tax. I wish more people uh, thought, thought that way, but unfortunately not so much. But, but you do. In fact, you have a reputation for thinking different, uh, voting no on things that almost everyone else in the House is okay with voting yes on. There was a point which Politico called you Mr. No. Um, why do you think you find yourself sort of out there taking these lonely stands against, I mean, majorities in both parties so often? <laughs> it is a lonely stand when you stand against spending more money up here or passing a new regulation. But uh, in fact, the, ironically, last night coming out of votes, uh, another colleague sort of jokingly said, oh, you just always vote no. You know, we were talking about some policy thing. They were trying to simplify it and say, oh, you just always vote no. And I and I and I, my response to her was, well, if you read the bill, you'd vote no, too. <laughs> like, but yeah. Uh, and that's sort of a play on something that that Ron Paul right said when they said why do you vote no all the time he said because i read the bill yeah. <laughs> um but the reality is i vote no i vote against my party maybe 20 percent of the time so i'm like 80 percent loyal to the republican party leadership okay now i would argue i'm 100 percent loyal to the Republican principles I campaigned right. on which yeah. means i have to be 20 percent disloyal to the leadership up here because right. they frequently violate that. But you can you if you vote no 20% of the time up here they will label you Mr. No. Yeah. That's how much that's how much they will tolerate. They might tolerate you voting no 1 in 20 times if it's your own party's bill. Once you get to like voting no 10% of the time you're you're like a radical up here. And by the time you get to voting no 20 or 30% of the time like I do, they Yeah, they just want to call you Mr. No. Yeah, like off the reservation, basically. (laughs) Yeah. he's. I don't know what he's thinking. And I tell people back home, you know, if you see evidence that I've been voting against too much spending up here and then it's resulted in in not enough money being spent, let me know and I'll ease up on the, the no button. Right. But until you see evidence that I have cut too much spending by voting no too frequently then I'm just going to keep voting that way on these spending bills. Yeah. 
Now, I know we're running short on time, but I just have one final question for you. It's kind of a big picture question. If you could change one thing about the House of Representatives, what would it be? <laughs> uh, I was wishing you would say if you could change one thing about Congress. If okay, I could let's, change, let's, let's broaden I'll, it. Sure, let, let's, let's okay. make it that question. Absolutely. I'll, I'll answer both questions. Okay. But if I could change one thing about Congress, it would be the Senate. <laughs> I would repeal the 17th Amendment. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a big change. All right. Yeah, because senators are, they're just like another House of Representatives over there. They're elected by popular vote, and our founders never intended that. They, for a republic to work, somebody has to represent the states in Washington, D.C., and that's what the Senate was supposed to do. The Senate no longer represents states. They are just like a big, like, uh, they're like congressmen. They're like U.S. representatives with six terms and a bigger uh, geography. Right. But. If I could change one thing about the House of Representatives, in fact, I've worked really hard to change this to some effect uh, at least once, I would change the power that's vested with the Speaker of the House. Okay. I don't think the, the founders ever intended for the Speaker of House to be the fundraiser in chief for the majority party. I think when they put this, this title of Speaker of the House, in the Constitution, well, they, they weren't even really anticipating parties, I don't think. But what they were anticipating was somebody who would be almost more like a parliamentarian mm-hmm. who would organize, who would referee a debate, okay, and try to lead it to a productive conclusion while respecting the views and the input gotcha. um, of all members of Congress. Like above the fray, sort of, in a way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But what it's devolved into is this fundraising position. And also, just like much of Congress wants to give its power to declare war or to raise tariffs to the executive branch, a lot of the people here actually willingly give authority to the speaker that the speaker was never meant to have constitutionally. And, I, and so I uh, worked with Mark Meadows we wrote our grievances down in a, uh, a House resolution to vacate the office of the Speaker, Wow! who, who was John Boehner at the uh-huh. time. And within six weeks of us introducing that, he resigned. Right. Now, we, I mean, there was a lot of palace intrigue and political work behind the scenes on that as well. But if you go back and, and read the motion to vacate, we wrote... The whereas clauses are a list of grievances where where the speaker took power that was not his away from members, mm-hmm. and we and the really disappointing thing to me in my time in Congress was after John Boehner was ushered out of the speaker's chair, we got Paul Ryan who took even more power than John Boehner had. He didn't he didn't use it well, mm-hmm. but he took more of our power away and and I was appalled when my colleague gave it to him. He said, "You know what? The the minority, which at the time was the Democrats, they're kind of pesky and we've really given them too much power to offer amendments on these spending bills. We're just going to take away the ability of members of Congress to offer amendments that that cut money from our spending bills." Right. That was that was a power every member of Congress had. I used to offer amendments all the time on the floor to defund things, and sometimes they would pass, and sometimes they wouldn't, and they usually got stripped out, 
you know, almost always get stripped <laughs> out. But at least I could have the vote and put Congress on record. Paul Ryan, when he announced he was taking that power away from every rank and file member of Congress, he got applause from the Republicans. Wow. And I was sitting there. It was like a dystopian future. Like, <laughs> he, just, he just said, he's going to take your power away. And you clapped. And they did. And so he took that power away. Of course, Pelosi didn't give it back. She's, she's right. taken even more power now. She says she can start an impeachment inquiry all by herself without a vote of Congress. Like, if I were a Democrat, I would be worried about that, sure. frankly, that, a, that, a, that one person could have that kind of power. I was, and, I, and I'm not just complaining about Pelosi. I, I hope you realize I, was no, I never voted for John Boehner. And I never voted for Paul Ryan. I'm the only Republican in Congress who can say that. Wow. Uh, and it's because they had, they had too much power. They didn't understand what their role was as Speaker. There were people running for Speaker of the House who promised, uh, like Daniel Webster from Florida, who promised to give more power back to the members. By the way, the, this is the thing that has changed over the course of Congress. There have been powerful speakers. And then there have been less powerful speakers, and it's when the membership rises up and pulls that power back. Sometimes it's a group of chairmen who go to the speaker and say, we're taking our power back. But the chairmen right now are placed there by the speaker. Right, That's so. way too much power. They don't even have the power to like hear a bill that the speaker doesn't want them to hear. And so ironically, I would be in favor of giving chairmen, even though I'm not one, more power, uh, divest some of the power from the speaker into the chairmanships. And so that's the one change I would, it wow. would, it's not even a policy change. It's a process change. It would benefit every Democrat as much as it yeah. benefits every Republican. So essentially it would make the house more small D democratic, basically. It would, well, for, <laughs> that's a dangerous term because yeah. I'm always reminding people, <laughs> this is a Republic, that's uh, not a democracy, right. but it would put, it would put uh, all members of Congress on a more equal footing right. and it would give Here's the thing. There's 750,000 constituents in roughly in every congressional district. And right now they're being denied a voice uh, in government because their members' rights to be heard and to legislate are being stymied by the speaker. And if, the, and if those 750,000 constituents in my district or other districts realize that they actually had a voice in Washington, D.C. through their congressman, that he wasn't just the guy who arranges tours of the Capitol for you. He's not just an ombudsman. If they really felt they have a voice, then they wouldn't be so apoplectic when their uh, pick loses the race for president, yeah. When, yeah. You know, which, is, which Democrats and Republicans tend to do. They see the, the presidential race as a Super Bowl, and it's the only thing that matters in the end to them. And part of the reason they, they feel that way I think is because they realize that their member of Congress isn't really that powerful because of the way the rules are set up in Congress. So right. change that process and everything just starts working better. All right. Well, I, I know, I know you have to run and you extended your time with me. I really appreciate that because it's been a, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. I could go on forever, but I know you have a meeting to get to. So uh, Congressman Thomas Massey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Hey, thank you for uh, asking questions that need to be asked, and thank you for giving me more time than a soundbite. <laughs> That's the problem that we have with the, the news media today and the people who consume it, you know, sort of like soundbites. But I think podcasts are really the way to go 
And uh, I, I love what you're doing. Thanks for asking these questions and uh, trying to get the answers to the questions that need to be asked. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we're posting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Mask. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.